Hi, welcome to Life Camera Author. I'm Jim Juno, and this is podcast where we talk about we talk with authors who write books about TV, movies, entertainment, and tonight I have with me Nat Segaloff. He was with me before uh, with the daughter of Sherry Lewis uh, with her book about the lamb chop and uh, lamb chop and and um, hush puppy, uh, or the life of Sherry Lewis, the biography then. But now he has a new book out. It's called The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear. Welcome back to the show, Nat. Well, thank you. Thanks very much. And thanks for reminding me that's what the book was. Uh, I have <laughs> I have four books now, and they're all coming. So I appreciate Exorcist. Okay, we'll talk about The Exorcist. Exorcist Legacy, yes. I know you've got another know. one we're going to be talking oh, about man. in July. And I've, got a, I've got a book about The Towering Inferno. I've got a book about Otto Preminger and the production code and the book about Scarface coming out. And honestly, I'm... You know, I'm all typed out. <laughs> well, I tell you what, it's it's great to have you here. And let, I did not realize this was the 50th year of The Exorcist coming out on in the big screens, as they used to say. This is a movie which changed the whole genre of horror, or maybe even started the genre of horror, wasn't it? It defined it in a different direction. And the way I can best describe it is when you watch Dracula or Frankenstein or the Wolfman or the Mummy uh, and you're a kid, you know they're not going to follow you home. But with The Exorcist, Satan could be hiding under your bed. That's true. He could be. And he could. And it's so it is so. I don't want to say disgusting. <laughs> the movie wasn't this. Well, the movie when it came out. It really had an effect on people, didn't it? It had, and no one could really measure what the effect was going to be. There were people vomiting in the aisles, or yeah. you hoped if you were a theater manager, they'd make it at least outside before they blew lunch, because there were things in the movie that chilled people to their very souls. But oddly enough, the things that made people barf uh, weren't things like the head spinning around or the throat swelling up. They were the hospital scenes of Reagan getting an arteriogram and the blood spurting out. In fact, Warner Brothers kind of did an independent survey of all the theaters then showing it. There were only 22 of them originally, yeah. uh, including the one where I worked. And um, that's when people ran up the aisle. And it was mostly men. Women could take it because, and this is something I discussed with Ellen Burstyn in the book, the Exodus is really uh, at one level about a mother protecting her child. And women had the ability to stay and look after their children. And the women in the audience could stay and look after Reagan. That's interesting. And and like you said, this was not a fear of the... It wasn't in your book. You say it's not a fear of the devil. It's a fear of the unknown. Pretty much. More, Be, yeah. yeah. Because the devil wasn't the one who possessed Reagan. It was a statue or a, a demon called Pazuzu, who was a demon of the winds. Uh, and... That's why it, it's even scarier, because how many demons are there out there? And if you're inculcated by your religion and brainwashed your entire life to believe in this stuff, it's going to be very real to you when you see a movie that exploits it. And I was I was um, I was 13 years old when this movie came out and I was at a very strict Catholic elementary school. And we were we were told, well, first off, it was rated R, so we couldn't go see it. Anyway. Right. <laughs> Yeah. You know, but but the priest was like, we do not want you to see this movie. And one of our teachers who was not so parochial went and saw it and was telling us all about it. And we were eating it up like, you know, because that's the quickest thing. That's the quickest way to have kids do something is tell them they can't do it. Can't do it right. <laughs> that's, that, that's true. And that's 
very odd because it seems to me it was a commercial for the church. Yeah, I would thought so too because it was. I mean, in the I don't want to. Well, you, if you haven't seen 50, it by now, if yeah, spoilers ahead. Oh no, spoilers ahead. The church wins in the end. Okay, um, <laughs> it's costly. It's a costly victory, but the church wins in the end. Um, yeah, you're right. It was it was a victory for the church, and but but really, the Catholic Church did not like this movie. I don't think they liked anybody looking under the covers, so to speak. And they've had so many scandals since then that I think they've <laughs> lost all their authority. But, you know, the whole point of, for example, having the Latin Mass well before uh, Vatican II and of having all the mumbo jumbo of saints and priests and all that and celibacy, really, it's the secrecy that, A, attracted so many people to the church because it really is a, a gorgeous and a mysterious service. I, I've been to many Catholic services. They're absolutely beautiful. At the same time, if you're looking for something specific, you're going to be very disappointed. And so I think it's the mysticism of the church which affected people and may have brought them toward believing what's in the exorcist. At the same time, I don't think the church would have wanted anybody looking behind the, the, the curtain, so to speak. You uh, did the you did the biography of William William Friedkin, if I can get the words out tonight. Yes, um, I did. Hurricane <laughs> Billy from uh, a publisher uh, many years ago. And um, now tell me a little bit about how you you did when you first saw The Exorcist, you didn't run screaming, you didn't throw up or anything, but you were because you really weren't inside the theater at the time. It was bizarre. We had a screening. One of our major critics in Boston, where I was working, Stuart Byron, wrote for a weekly paper and Stewart knew a lot about people in the industry. And he asked Billy if they could get a screening the day before opening so that the critics could write a thoughtful review. And so I had to guard the door of the theater of the auditorium so that people other than the press would not come in there. People couldn't bring their friends or editors or anybody. It was just about 20 press people. So I was guarding it. Uh, and whenever I heard a scream or a loud noise, I'd run in to see what was on the screen by the time it was over. So I really didn't see The Exorcist for uh, another couple of days because it was so crowded. And incidentally, if you check your mental calendar, it opened on December 26th, 1973. Right. And so if we had our screening the day before opening, it was Christmas morning. Now, I don't know if you know a lot about film critics, but many of them would not mind at all leaving their families on Christmas morning <laughs> to come to a movie. And they did. And that's what, and yeah, it really amazed me that I did not realize it had such a limited release. Like you said, I believe it was like 22 theaters. In, the, in those days, you would open in the major theater in a major city. And then after a couple of weeks, if it did business, they would then open to the suburban theaters. And then after several months, it would open on a theater or drive in near you. That was called platforming. And that pretty much went out with Jaws in 1975 when Universal decided to open everywhere and everything and everybody all at once. And so they would do stages of release to build up word of mouth because they weren't sure with The Exorcist how it was going to be reacted to in the local communities, if there were going to be censorships or picketing or anything else. So they were monitoring every single performance and they realized that it was a hit. And that's when they started opening it in other theaters. How did you get, I mean, of course you did the biography of Friedkin, but how did you get interested in, like, what, what triggered in your mind saying, I should do a book on The Exorcist? I have a great agent. His name is Lee Sobel. And we were talking one day and he said, and this is his philosophy. It's going to sound cynical, but you got to go with me on this. He says, I want to represent books where if you shout the title out in a shopping mall, everybody runs to the bookstore to buy it. So we were looking through two years hence, you know, what was going to happen in 2023. And we said, 
the exorcist is going to have a 50th anniversary. And I said, well, uh, I wrote the book on Billy Friedkin and zing, it all came together. And he sold the book within a matter of days to Kensington Citadel Publishers. And it's been a joy ride ever since. And Friedkin, uh, he had some issues. <laughs> you said that he's flamboyant in your book. You call him flamboyant. Um, but he he really did he get along with the people on the on the cast? I mean, oh, I know that yeah, yeah. I know that one one actor, I believe, the 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 uh the priest, the young priest. Jason Miller. Did, Jason Miller but, didn't see eye to eye with him. Well, sometimes. I mean, you don't give line readings to an actor, and I think Billy can sometimes do that in the name of efficiency. There was also a case where Father William O'Malley, an actual priest who was playing Father Dyer in the film, who was the close friend of Father Karras, was having trouble getting up to a performance. And he wasn't a resourceful actor. He was a priest. He had a day job, so to speak. And it was three in the morning, and it was cold, and they had to have him deliver the last rites to his close friend, Father Karras. And uh, Bill uh, O'Malley just was, wasn't there for it. So Billy Friedkin said, and this is a, a story that's been told many times, he goes up to the, the father and says, Bill, do you trust me? And O'Malley said, yes, I do. And Friedkin hauled off and slugged him right in the face and said, roll camera. And you see this in the film. You see a, a man who's just shaken for losing his best friend. But in fact, he's shaken because the director slugged him. I know. And, <laughs> but after cut, they made up and they fully understood uh, what the reason for that was. So it, it's a shortcut when you're freezing your pills off in the cold of Washington, D.C. at three in the morning in the middle of winter. Uh, but I, I secretly think that Billy, who was raised Jewish, kind of got his rocks off slugging a Catholic priest. I may be <laughs> wrong about that. But he, he doesn't do that to actors. He lets actors do their job. And I think the number of fine performances you've seen in Friedkin films over you know more than 50 years testifies to his ability as a director. And you, uh, you talked to Ellen Barkin. Wait a minute. She wait a minute. Was, yeah, she was the mother. Ellen Burstyn. Was Ellen Burstyn. I'm sorry, Ellen Barkin. I th yeah. I, I happen to think that Ellen Burstyn is the finest living American actress. And she's also a very spiritual woman. I don't mean religious. I mean spiritual. And so I'll tell you a story. Mm -hmm. um, she had made a film several years ago called Resurrection which is about a woman who is in a terrible accident and she discovers afterwards that she becomes a healer, not a faith healer, but a healer. And there was a woman named Rosalind Bruyere who was a, a real healer who lives in California and has a practice here. And Universal Pictures toured her to talk to all the critics like me about the movie Resurrection. And I told this to Ellen Burstyn uh, and it's with what got her to consent to the interview. I interviewed uh, Rosalind Briere. And this was at a time when the Shah of Iran was in the news and he had cancer. And I asked her, this is for a radio interview on tape, Dr. Briere, are you ever concerned about being forced to cure somebody who is a public menace? And she kind of batted the question around and said, no. So she left. The interview was, I'm, I'm editing the interview. This is for CBS radio. And I come to that part of our interview and it just, it feels wrong. I take the question out. I cut. In those days, we used tape. I threw the tape in the trash can. The instant it hit the bottom of the trash can, my phone rang. It was from the Universal Pictures publicist. Dr. Briere asked, would you please take that question out? The coincidence wow. was such that I felt a chill as I'm feeling even now. I told that to Ellen Burstyn, and she says, yes, that's the sort of things that can happen. Uh, Ellen Burstyn is convinced that there was a curse on the exorcist and all these terrible things happened. Uh, I dispute that. Other people do. But if you feel it, 
it becomes real to you. She is just a magnificent actress in what she feels. I mean, she's one of the people running the actor's studio now in what she can relate to other people and how she could bring a performance out of other people. She bonded with Linda Blair as Reagan and even kept in touch with her afterwards uh, as kind of a surrogate mother. I mean, Linda Blair is perfectly normal and has a normal family, but Ellen Burstyn was like a second mother. And I admire her so much. And I think her performance in the film is just extraordinary. See, that's, that's a what, long answer. I'm sorry. That's okay. So no, long. actually, it was going to lead to my next question because about the cur- the legend of the curse of the Exorcist movie, you know, like I said, like you said, it, it's probably nothing, but a lot of people out there feel this movie was actually cursed. No, okay. So the set burned down. All right. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, okay. Ellen, so, so, so many broker. Broker, uh, well, she hurt her back. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody, yeah, somebody uh, lost their their toe. Uh, somebody died afterwards. Um, you know, well, you know, it's it, it isn't publicity. It's just that when you're taking five hundred to a thousand people over the course of the three years that the film took to make, and their families, statistically, something's going to happen to somebody. True. And I I think that's that's pretty much the case. There's no actuarial way to describe how this would happen, but. Listen, it, it feeds the whole legend of the exorcist. And if it makes them buy the exorcist legacy, my book, more power to them. When I was, I'm going to go back to my school days here because we always talked about this movie in the, in the book. I mean, in the, in the school. Um, and the biggest, the biggest discussion was Linda Blair. She did everything. She, she actually threw up on him and actually on the priest actually turned her head all the way around by some, some muscle contraction or something like that, you know? And uh, I mean, these are 13 year old kids talking yeah, about right. a movie they've never seen, you know? And then, <laughs> and then, and then it became like a, well, no, she didn't do this. She didn't, she didn't do this, you know? And, and she wasn't the voice. Of, the only thing I, I found in that she wasn't the voice of the demon. Now, the voice was mostly Mercedes McCambridge, mm-hmm. but there's also some strange of William Friedkin and other people in there because they wanted a voice that was unearthly. And Mercedes McCambridge, who was a recovering alcoholic at the time, started drinking again to record the voices. And she put raw eggs in her mouth and she put herself to teach to manage to be tied to a chair. And so she could struggle. She put herself through hell, a, a really fine actress giving an amazing performance who then by her contract, was not credited in the film, but there was a brouhaha and Warner Brothers and Freakin went back and revised it so that she should be credited and participation by Mercedes McCambridge. And that was, you think that cost Linda Blair? Her? I mean, she was nominated for an Oscar. She she was trying to be. Um, there was another case where there's a, a, a very, uh, a petite woman named Eileen Dietz, who was Linda Blair's makeup stand-in for some of the scenes and was Dick Smith's stand-in to do test makeup. And there was some back and forth legally about this. And uh, somebody had quoted Eileen as saying that she played Linda Blair's role in The Exorcist in the makeup scenes. Uh, I, I, I've read the legal papers about all of that, and I conclude in the book that what actually happened, and she's now saying it correctly, is that she portrayed the demon in some of the scenes in The Exorcist for the heavy makeup or when there were physical things to do. But Linda Blair did portray the possessed Reagan otherwise. Yes, it's, 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 it's an important parsing because at the time, Friedkin said that uh, Miss Dietz's comments probably cost Linda Blair an Oscar. I don't know if that's the case, but there was a lot of bitterness going back and forth. Yeah, and they did win the Oscar for uh, uh, Best Original Screenplay, I believe. 
It was best adaptive screenplay. Best from, adaptive by, screenplay by Bill Blatty, who was quite an accredited screenwriter from his book, uh, and it hurt his feelings that you know Billy Friedkin and others weren't uh, uh, the beneficiaries. But there was a movement against The Exorcist, led by George Cukor, who was very much a traditional director, and um, Robert Aldrich and mm -hmm. others of the Directors Guild who didn't want The Exorcist to represent Hollywood at the Academy Awards. And yet it was nominated. The film, of course, that won that period was The Sting, uh, which, although it's a fine film, uh, I don't think anybody's seen it in 50 years. No, I don't believe so. I mean, I may catch on Turner Classic Movies sometime, but that's by accident more than on purpose. And, uh, you know, the uh, the amazing work of Max von Sydow, I hope I pronounce his name right. I mean, he was only 44. I found out when he was when he, <laughs> when he was in this movie, but he looked so much older. The makeup was incredible. That's Dick Smith who perfected the old age makeup using various latex appliances. By the way, Dick Smith's assistant, a kid who was just starting out, was Rick Baker, who has since won every, oh Academy, every Academy Award there is. He was, he was just putting himself through high school, and he got a call because he'd sent some letters to Smith. He said, want to come out and help me? I, I got to have somebody else making all these molds at my house. So uh, Rick lived in uh, Dick's basement during The Exorcist and, uh, and, and made all the latex molds for him. Amazing. And even before the movie came out, there was there was controversy. Some some places, especially overseas, I believe in the UK, wouldn't even air the 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 trailers for it. That's new information to me. I know that the UK is the home of a man named Mark Kermode, who is the world's greatest exorcist fan, and uh. thinks it's the best film. Mark's an old friend of mine, and um, he he contributed heavily to the book. In fact, I co-dedicated it to him. So um, he said, I, I'll have to follow that up with him and see if they wouldn't run these things. The film, of course, was, you know, they have different censorship system in England. And I'm sure that the uh, chancery didn't didn't want it being seen. Anything involving God in a movie has to be very carefully controlled over there. I think it may have been Ireland that that the uh, the place, the, the trailer, it was the original trailer, not the one where it showed scenes from the movie, but the one that showed mm -hmm. the flashes of the white faced yeah. demon, you know, and um that was, and I've seen that. You can find it on YouTube. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty disturbing. Uh, if you're, if you have epilepsy, you may not want to see it. <laughs> That's a very good point, and there, there really should be a warning on that. Yeah, and um, what, what surprised you most about researching this movie? Uh, I wasn't as surprised as the answer would probably require because I had done it back in 1988 and 89 when I had written the uh, biography of William Friedkin. But I was surprised by the number of people who still, 50 years later, are afraid to see the movie, like it's going to possess them of something if they watch it. I, there are people I know who just say, well, I'm not going to watch that movie. I said, well, why? I said, I, I don't know why. It's just, it's, it feels wrong to me. It, it's a scary movie for people, but I don't know. Something about their psyche just keeps them from uh, wanting to encounter it. And I couldn't imagine how that would happen 50 years later. Yeah, but it still does. And um, I'm I'm a, I'm in the boat with you that I I tell people I'm going to watch The Exorcist tonight. Oh, I can't watch that. And, yeah, and it's not that I don't want to watch it; it's that I can't watch it. That's what <laughs> that's I'm, I don't know. I mean, I've I can't watch it because I've seen it about twenty times. You know, but, that, <laughs> but but give me a chance, I'll I'm, I'm sure I'll come back into the fold. Uh, and for but, people, you know, yeah. No, I was just going to say, the book isn't about just The Exorcist. It's about all the prequels and sequels that were made. That was my next question. I was going to say, uh, yeah, but people people went to see this movie 
even though they were afraid to, a lot of people were afraid to, but a lot of people went and there was, there was uh, Exorcist 2, 3, 4, I mean, how many now are there, 6? If there is a curse to the Exorcist, it fell upon the people who tried making sequels and prequels to it. Yes. Uh, there was a, a movie called Exorcist II, The Heretic, that John Borman, who's a highly regarded director, made uh, several years later. And that was an absolute disaster uh, because people wanted to see more exorcism. Instead, he made a philosophical film about the difference between good and evil. Uh, then several years later, there was William Peter Blatty, who made his own version, a film called, which wound up being called Exorcist III, but it was based on his novel Legion, which is actually a very sophisticated meditation on good and evil and uh, taken with another film that Bill Blatty made called The Ninth Configuration. It's really his trilogy about God and the good and evil. It's it really is worth watching, but it was heavily cut and he had to do reshoots because the distributor had problems with it. And then years later, there were two films made a prequel. There was Dominion, which was made by Paul Schrader, an extraordinarily gifted filmmaker. Again, a contemplation on good and evil, which was about how Father Marin first encountered Pazuzu and, and, and moved into being the Vatican's exorcist. And when that was deemed to be unreleasable by the uh, film company, they hired Rennie Harlan to come in and reshoot 90% of it to make mm -hmm. a film called The Beginning, the prequel to The Exorcist. And that was uh, an action film. Uh, which also didn't do very well. So they're both competent filmmakers. And I, the way I like to describe them is Paul Schrader made a film, but Rennie Harlan made a movie. And there was a television series that ran for two seasons starring Gina Davis, and I won't give that away. That was okay. very competently done. Um, but how it was not a, a remake of the Blatty book, but it was an extrapolation of the story. And now, of course, we're waiting for David Gordon Green's Exorcist reboot, which is coming out on October 13th, I believe. And that's the first of a trilogy, which is going to take The Exorcist into a new generation. Yeah. I haven't seen that, although Green was very, very helpful in giving me an interview more than a year ago before he'd even started the film. You can't keep a good demon down. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Anything with exorcism, you know, they, they say it's going to make money. I just hope it does. These people put a lot of money into this. And if it gets a discussion like this started, I think it's important. Exactly. Um, I got to ask the one story. Let me ask you. you um, I don't know. You met you met William Peter Blatty, of course. Oh, yeah, we were friends. We were oh. friends. I'm pleased to say. The old story that he was on You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx, and he won $10,000. <laughs> Look he, it up on YouTube. Yeah. It's on, it's on YouTube. <laughs> and he says, I think I'll write a novel. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's more complicated than that. Bill was a top comedy writer in Hollywood, but he found that as the 60s wore on, these kind of comedies that he made, most of which were with Blake Edwards, were falling out of favor. And he tried to get other jobs. But this is a major comedy writer. He'd written a, a Pink Panther film, for heaven's sake, The Shot in the Dark. He'd written John Goldfarb, Please Come Home. He'd done all these great comedies. And they said, oh, Bill, you're a comedy writer. Don't try to do a drama. So he... Uh, took himself off, bought a bunch of Marlboros, started his <laughs> his golf ball uh, IBM typewriter and uh, took a, a house and started writing a, a book based on something he'd heard about when he was an undergraduate at Georgetown. And that became The Exorcist. And that was the real story. I mean, that was the uh, that was the story. It was based upon a real, real event, The Exorcist. Based upon. Yeah, I have based doubts upon. about whether the event was real. Okay. It was about the supposed possession of a boy in Cottage City, Maryland, in 1949. And it may or may not have been a, a real event. It was covered as if it was. 
I go into that in great detail in the book with uh, some terrific uh, scholarship by a, a wonderful man named Mark Upsaznik, who had done some uh, some groundbreaking research on the actual possession case. We talk about who the actual person was and whether it was real or not. And Blatty had read that as an undergraduate, and he just came back into his mind when he needed a book to write. And it expressed his belief that if you could prove the existence of a devil, then you would have to, by yin and yang, I suppose, also prove the existence of God. And that was what he was trying to do. You have a horror story of sorts written by a Jesuit scholar who is writing a philosophical religious tract proving the existence, the existence of God. Uh, that's pretty heavy lifting, but I think Bill Blatty pulled it off fairly well. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. I want to don't go into a lot of detail yet because we're going to talk about it in July, but you have another book coming out. And tell me a little bit about that one. Uh, that would be the one about outer premature versus the production code. Breaking the code. <laughs> I've mm-hmm. also got other ones, yeah. <laughs> um, Otto Preminger, The Man You Hate to Love, was a director-producer and um, a provocateur who, in 1953, wanted to make a film version of a stage play he directed, um, which was called The Moon is Blue, which was a, an innocuous sex comedy about a, a girl who resists all efforts to get her into bed and remains a virgin. It did very well on Broadway. And when he wanted to make the film version for 1954 release, he was told by the production code administration, which then censored movies, he couldn't do it because he used the word virgin and because he made light of sex. And Preminger argued, but this is, is not a vulgar picture. It's a, it's a movie in favor of virginity. Uh, and the back and forth he had with a man named Joseph Breen, who was then oh, head no, of the production code administration. Yeah. Um forms the basis of first of a play that Arnie Reisman and I wrote years ago and that I have now turned into this book about Preminger's decades-long fight with the production code. And the amazing thing about it is, although everybody hates censors, the censors tied their own hands. And Joe Breen, who had some problems, shall we say, yeah. emerges as a literate, funny, brash, really, really important character in the history of film. And I just figured he was his blue nose censor, like somebody who fell off of a Grant Wood painting. It turned out that Joe Breen was just this uh, absolutely garrulous uh, lay Catholic who uh, believed in all sorts of amazing things and could give it back as well as he could take it. So it's, uh, I, I think the book is a revelation about both of them and about the struggles that the screen went through. Uh, which eventually led to the destruction of the production code and the emergence of Jack Valenti's letter rating system, which we have today. Didn't uh, Preminger also break the the blacklist with us? Yes, uh, that was well. It's inter- you're, you're you're conflating two two points, and that's that's uh, very important one. Preminger hired Dalton Trumbo, who was a blacklisted screenwriter, right. to write Leon Uris's Exodus. When he announced that he was hiring Trumbo to write Exodus. Kirk Douglas, who was then producing Spartacus, and for which he had hired Dalton Trumbo, decided to announce that Trumbo was writing Spartacus. So Preminger broke the ice, and Douglas filled in, and they both got notoriety for it. Douglas, for the rest of his life, took credit for breaking the blacklist. In fact, it was Otto, and my source on this is Dalton Trumbo's son, Chris Trumbo. But they're both very important and very brave men to do this, Kirk Douglas and Otto Preminger. Fantastic. Well, I tell you what, Nat, Nat Segaloff is the author. The book is, the first book is The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear. And the book after that is going to be called Breaking the Code. Uh, it's the story of Otto Preminger breaking the production code. And we'll be hopefully be talking to you again, Nat, uh, in July. 
I'll be here typing. I'll be, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be here going over the galleys for Scarface, which is coming out in September. Oh my gosh, another book. <laughs> yeah, yes. This is this is what COVID does. You know, you have nothing else to do. You start writing books. Exactly. Are you battling COVID right now? Or are you only in the existential sense? I haven't had it. Uh, I had bronchitis, but no, uh, I, I I got my shots. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. The anti-vaxxers I know are all dead. <laughs> I got my shots too, but I still caught it on January one, which oh, is a I... great way to welcome the new year. You know? yeah, so. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I hope you can. I hope you smell and taste again. I hope it's all all gone now. Almost. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have enough taste to talk to me, so I appreciate that. (laughs) I appreciate you being here. Nat, again, thank you for being on Light Camera Author tonight. It's a pleasure, Jim. Thanks.